Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by the great Mark Davis. Mark is a radio host in Dallas-Fort Worth, syndicated nationally, and he's a regular Newsweek columnist. Mark has been a reliable and, an, I would say, authoritative voice on matters of conservatism for a good long time. He's also a true gentleman. We look forward to bringing Mark onto the program shortly. We'll be brief here in our opening remarks because we want to go long with Mark on current events and the future of conservatism. But one issue that I want to touch on was what I wrote about in my most recent column, which kind of blew up over the weekend, and I'll explain why, which was on a big debate that is happening right now inside the state of Israel. It's actually a debate that we see replicated across many countries across the world. There have been very similar skirmishes in recent years in countries such as Hungary, Poland, Brazil. We had Matthew Tiermund on recently to discuss everything that happened there in the aftermath of the recent election with Bolsonaro and Lula da Silva. And This issue in Israel is pertaining to judicial overreach and kind of this dynamic that, again, we see playing out in those similar countries across the world where a very liberal left-wing court is purporting to kind of just override a duly enacted government. And the column that I wrote on this, where I was supporting the Netanyahu-led government's efforts at judicial reform, is basically predicated upon the following. So the Israeli Supreme Court is probably more powerful than any other Western-style democracy's Supreme Court. Specifically, what happened was that in the 1990s, the chief justice of their Supreme Court pronounced a quote-unquote constitutional revolution. And Israel does not have a codified, formally written constitution. It has 13 laws that constitute a quasi-constitution. But nonetheless, in the 1990s, the chief justice pronounced this constitutional revolution and basically arrogated to the court the power to overturn any law at any time for any reason whatsoever. That is not an exaggeration. Over there, that they, they can overturn a law. They can even veto. This is incredible. They can even veto the parliament's appointments of ministers, which they literally did last week. They literally just vetoed uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's appointment of Arya Derry, the leader of the Shas party, to lead uh, two uh, ministries, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Interior. They can nullify laws or cabinet appointments on grounds as flimsy as, quote-unquote, extreme unreasonableness or for being quote-unquote too political and the judicial reform that the government is trying to propose there would basically put in a parliamentary override clause that would permit the parliament to kind of override a bad supreme court decision by a certain threshold but potentially a supermajority threshold and then it would change the way that supreme court justices over there are currently selected because as it currently is justices effectively choose their own replacements which is anyone who's vaguely familiar with with the way it works in the united states knows that is not how it works here you have advice and consent where a president nominates and the senate confirms so uh, look uh, real quick here because we want to get to mark shortly all of this flunks lowercase r, Republican political theory and constitutional law 101 in its most rudimentary forms. And from an American perspective in particular, it should be profoundly offensive. It should be deeply offensive to our principles of Republican self-governance and popular sovereignty as rooted in the we the people of the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, which is kind of the wellspring of our popular sovereignty. Now, if, if you go back to the Federalist Papers and kind of the founding era, The judicial branch in the United States was always intended to be the least dangerous. That is the famous term that Alexander Hamilton uses in the Federalist Number 78, because ultimately, at the end of the day, we are a republic or a democracy. We are not a juristocracy. We are not a judicial oligarchy. Judges have a role to play in a democratic, republican, or parliamentary system. But there is no world... There is no world in which a country can claim to represent the will of the people where the judicial branch 
by definition of the, of the fact that they are the judicial branch, is the most powerful institution, let alone can nullify any law for any reason at any time whatsoever. So that was basically the column that I wrote. I would encourage you guys to check it out on Newsweek's opinion page. Uh, I'm very grateful for the fact that actually Prime Minister Netanyahu himself tweeted it out over the weekend and posted it to his Instagram page. So uh, if by chance you're listening to this program, Prime Minister, thank you. Thank you, obviously, for that. Um, But again, this debate is playing out in so many countries around the world. Uh, Prime Minister Orban in Hungary has faced very similar international backlash as Prime Minister Netanyahu is facing now. Uh, Prime Minister Morawiecki in Poland has faced very similar backlash. In in Brazil, the Supreme Court is just as extreme as as the Israeli Supreme Court, arguably. Uh, I think Matthew Tiermond, our former guest, would argue arguably even more so. So this is a recurring theme you're now seeing throughout the world, is conservative governments versus leftist judiciaries. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to play out on a case-by-case basis, but, you know, I personally am certainly rooting for, at least in this particular instance, for the Netanyahu-led government's judicial reform to go ahead and rein in that out-of-control judicial body. So let's get to a quick commercial break here. We will bring on shortly Mark Davis. Mark's going to be a wonderful guest. I have every, every confidence in that, so please do stay with us. We will be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So as previously mentioned, what a pleasure to bring on this week, Mark Davis. Mark is a syndicated radio host based in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You can hear him on 660 AM, The Answer, and all throughout the country via Salem Radio Network. He's also a columnist for us and Newsweek, among other locations. So, Mark, I feel like this is long overdue, my friend. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Well, better late than never, and it just gives us more to talk about, and it's a joy to be on. I've been a big fan of yours personally, of Newsweek institutionally, and of this podcast for the year or so that it's been doing its great work. Well, it's kind of a full circle moment, isn't it? Because if you recall correctly, when I, when I was actually living in the Dallas area, I, was, I think I was set to kind of guest host for you a few times there in studio, and then it was right when COVID happened, and that kind of blew everything up. But, you know, so great to reconnect with you now uh, a, few, a few years, and I guess as the case may be 1,000 or 1,500 miles away. But always great to chat with you, my friend. So you, for a long time now, and certainly in the pages of Newsweek, usually on a, on a twice-a-month basis, have been a consistent voice for conservatism, for you know, for traditional values, free enterprise, and, and all of that. What, one of your recent themes in your writings for Newsweek has been the possible inadequacy of the way that current Republican elected officials and conservative activists, radio voices, columnists, all of us in this have been actually selling the cause of conservatism, especially in the aftermath of the disappointing 2022 midterms. Why don't you elaborate on that, what you mean by that uh, for the listeners of this program? Happy to, because election cycles giveth and they taketh away. And Lord knows we, we've learned that. Uh, even when they giveth, sometimes they giveth us uh, a Bush president uh, or, or a McCain nominee, things that aren't exactly the most conservative uh, knife in the drawer. And, and then it's our job to gather behind whoever the nominee is and hope for the most conservative results. Uh, then you get to a Trump phenomenon, which we can you know, talk about at length in the in the in the coming minutes. Uh, and, the, and now in 24, Trump, DeSantis, we're, we're, we're always looking for uh, the best conservative results we can, or at least that's what we should be looking for. But then you get something like the 2022 midterms and that it, it puts people's tails between their legs and it makes people wonder aloud if maybe that this whole conservatism thing just isn't going over so well and that maybe we need to dial back from it and reach across the aisle and do more of the half measures and the mitigated battles that have helped get this country into its current uh, morass. My bottom line is that what we need is a generation of people, and I don't even mean that necessarily chronologically, those people can be 65 like me or 35, uh, is a class of people who can sell conservatism unapologetically uh, in an upbeat and muscular and confident fashion, 
and make it appeal to people in the way that it should and to do so without fear and to do so with the ability to, while being a happy warrior, also be willing to engage and beat down the attacks that will surely come from the left when we sell conservatism with such boldness. So what has gone wrong then from like a messaging perspective over the over, over the past I mean, I mean, we could say over the past few years, but I mean, really going back since 1988, of course, the Republican Party has only won the you know the national popular vote and only one election. That, of course, being 2004. So we could go back even further than that. So what is what has gone wrong then, as far as our inability to do exactly what you just said? I think some of it has been at, some of it is the fault of the messengers, and some of it is the fault of donors, and some of it. I say this advisedly, is the fault of the public. Uh, Our country these days votes like a self-absorbed 12-year-old. So you have to pitch to it somewhat differently than you would if you were speaking to a fully formed adult. That having been said, confidence and clarity speak to all people. And when we step forward and say that we are the party that actually wants to do less for you, but but as people run screaming for the exits, we will leave you with more of your money and more of your freedom and more of your dignity and more of your self-worth. That is the kind of thing that should appeal to people. Now, of course, we're doing this up against a tapestry of what the left does, which is hand everyone the crack pipe of free stuff paid for by other people. That is a mighty challenge. And the problem has been we've had too many Republicans who say, well, the left is promising them A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Maybe we need to plan to promise them W, X, Y, and Z. And so we find ourselves being a, a party of just another type of big government. One of my you know, oldest you know, laugh lines at speaking engagements, if they are such things, is that the only difference between Republicans and Democrats is that they're both going to make government bigger, but the Republicans will say they feel just terrible about it. <laughs> so we need to step in. And, and Trump did this with all of the ancillary issues that have made his brand a, a, an item of mixed reaction these days. One of the reasons that that the hatred of him was so vociferous is the the inescapable conservative results of what he was doing, constitutionalist justices, borders, tax cuts, and and the absolute I don't care stance toward the establishment of both parties. The, the, The Republican Party of today finds itself mired in an establishment disease, which, and I'll end the answer this way, because we find ourselves with two very current things. Is Kevin McCarthy a part of the problem or might he not be part of the solution? I have optimism. And then in the RNC, is our current troublesome stretch Ronna McDaniel's fault? I don't necessarily think so. I'm a fan of Harmeet Dillon. Maybe it's just time for turnover for turnover's sake. But, uh, you know, as with Every other you know, election cycle, as it begins, we find ourselves in a quest for how to attract the most people, because ultimately that's what elections are all about. You know, I would love your thoughts on just the Kevin McCarthy fight more generally, because even though it was a couple of weeks ago now, it still kind of lingers in the back of my mind. I mean, it just I think within the past week, I saw the news about this this reported uh, bathroom fight between Lauren Boebert and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, um, you know, it seems like we're still seeing the aftermath, uh, whether it's in, in the conservative media or whether it's in the U.S. House itself of this very bitter kind of intra-Republican, intra-conservative fight. So what were your thoughts on the fight itself and how do you view it now that it's over from a Kevin McCarthy perspective? I think going in, uh, Congressman McCarthy, Leader McCarthy, was overpraised and overcriticized, uh, which can probably be said of many. Um, many, uh, I mean, there were the 200 and then there were the 20, right? There are many in the 200 who absolutely promised him that he was God's gift uh, to the future of conservatism. I don't know about that. That's a big we'll see. And there were some among the 20 who said it's just it's John Boehner and Paul Ryan and maybe even worse. And I think that was horribly, horribly harsh. So what wound up happening is, I think, the best of all possible worlds. It did seem to be McCarthy's time to get the baton. You can like that or not like that, but that is the way it tends to go. So the question then became, what can we glean from him? What can we squeeze out of him? So say what you will about the 20. Uh, Folks like Chip Roy, whom I admire greatly. Folks like Matt Gates, who I sometimes do not. 
but I'll tell you what they all have in common and throw in Mar well, Marjorie Taylor Greene was on team McCarthy from the get go, which opened a lot of eyes. Ms. Boebert, not so much. Uh, and I think when you get to the Gates, Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar wing, they have masterfully attracted an enormous amount, I think, of disproportionate attention by some of their theatrics. I choose to pay more attention to what kind of votes will they cast. And as these four people I just mentioned now find themselves with some pretty important committee assignments, you know, on Morning Joe, that's like an asteroid hurtling toward the earth. <laughs> I just think it tends to be probably more reliable conservative votes on some key committees, which I think is the upshot of what this whole Kevin McCarthy thing yielded was some concessions that that virtually every conservative can say were net positives. And I, in the couple of weeks since this battle has played out, I think McCarthy has been saying a lot of the right things. Now we'll say we'll see if he does so many of those right things. We will. And I think this the single member motion to vacate the chair is just a massive concession that in theory should be an enforcement mechanism strong enough to force him to abide by the terms of his agreement. I mean, you mentioned Chip Roy. I think if, if no one else, Chip Roy, I think, is ready to to potentially utilize that single member motion to vacate. Um, I'm obviously a huge fan of Chip's. He's he, he is a, he, he's a friend of the show and just a wonderful man. Um, so we talked about, or at least we teased on the Trump phenomenon earlier. I kind of want to go back to that from a slightly broader perspective. You know, Mark, this show launched about a year ago. And I think one of like the most recurring themes on this show is how much, or really whether and if so, how much Trump really did change everything. Uh, the Republican Party, American conservatism, all of it. And, and you know, the basic so-called I, I have a love-hate relationship with the term new right, but like the the basic new right thesis is that Trump shifted the conservative conversation in a more nationalist and populist direction when it comes to issues like trade, immigration, foreign policy. So as a major kind of syndicated radio voice who's been in the business for a while, um, you've observed conservative trends for a while. Do you, do you buy that basic thesis? Do you think Trump really has shifted the conversation or do, are some people overstating that? And the, the natural kind of corollary to that is, is that a good thing? I think he broadly changed a lot of conversations. Some of them involved populism, which as a traditional conservative, I admire some of populism and some of it I don't. Uh, some of the populist things that I did not like, uh, various types of tariffs and, you know, and some of the other things, uh, I, I, was I willing to uh, put a pin in those because I was getting so much of what I did want from the Trump presidency. Yes, that's the bargain we make in absolutely every year. You're never going to get 100% of what you want. At least I haven't in my 65 years. <laughs> so yes, he changed a lot of conversations. I think most of them involved uh, how to simply steamroll. It, it, was, it, was, it might have been more style than substance. And don't underestimate how important that is. Maybe the most important thing Trump did is show every Republican how to actually get up off the couch and fight, how to not, not take the guff from the media, how to not take the guff from Democrats, how to stop worrying about how acceptable you were at Georgetown cocktail parties, how to stop worrying about whether you get invited on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd anymore. He did not care. And that was infectious and I think enormously beneficial. Now, so what we have now is not an entire party filled with uh, Trump clones, I, my head would explode, but some people <laughs> whose spines have been stiffened and whose backs have been strengthened. It, it, just as the Tea Party sort of became mainstream Republicanism, Trumpism is now embraced by 80, 90% of the party. Trumpism, even if his exact brand may be fading from favor. And I, I don't, that, that too is probably overestimated and underestimated. So did he change many, many things? Yes, he did. And I am thankful for the vast majority of the things that he did change. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that we're now two years past Inauguration Day 2021 for Joe Biden, and we're still discussing whether the Trump effect was substantive, rhetorical, stylistic, or some, you know, amorphous combination thereof. My own two cents on this is that the proof will ultimately be in the pudding. I mean, we'll, we will see who Republicans choose to next nominate, what that uh, Republican presidential nominee says, and, you know, God willing, uh, if, if assuming it's a good candidate, of course, what he or she ultimately does in office somewhere down the road. But it's an interesting debate, and it's one that we turn to on, on the show very frequently. You know, one of those issues that I mentioned that I do think Trump had a major 
impact, at least on, on kind of shifting the debate or changing the terms of the debate, was foreign policy. And I think it would be inaccurate to call Trump an, an, an isolationist. I think that is totally inaccurate. I, I do not think that he had that view of the world, but he definitely was profoundly skeptical of kind of the the you know uh, saber rattling neoconservatism of, of, of prior decades. And one way that we kind of see that playing out right now is kind of within kind of the intra-conservative debate over this almost year-long conflict in, in Russia and Ukraine. So I, I'd be curious what you think about that war, which, you know, at this point, I mean, it's tough to see an end in sight. I mean, the prime minister of Finland was just in Davos within this past week saying, I have one message and one message only. We will stand with Ukraine for however long it takes. It's a truly maximalist position. So uh, what, what is your basic take on the conflict there now, almost a year into it? You have framed it perfectly. And the conundrum is that there seem to be two directions in which this can go, and neither of them is good. One of them is everybody, all hands on deck, forever war. We got to go until Putin is convinced to leave Ukraine. If that ever happens, how much money, how much time, how much war material, how many countries will be denuded of their own ability to wage war and defend their own borders by virtue of having dumped so much stuff into the hands of Zelensky. I, I, you know, I'm just, I become a bigger Rand Paul fan every day, every time he takes to the floor to talk about stuff like this. But then I think about the ramifications of just saying, okay, enough. Well, what in the world does that yield? We give Putin as much of Ukraine as he wants. Uh, There is talk of this negotiated solution where the eastern 25% of Ukraine, which remains very politically, very culturally, even linguistically Russian, we just kind of reach an agreement where, yes, that becomes part of Russia. This happens every once in a while in the world. But I don't see Putin accepting that as enough, and I don't see Zelensky uh, agreeing to that. So so it seems to be a war with no end in sight or we get sufficiently sick of it that we begin to pull our support, which only energizes Putin and brings about a potentially even worse result. So you tell me uh, which of those is the better way to go. You know, I was, I'll go a little personal here, actually. I was visiting my, I live in South Florida, as listeners all know, and I was spending time with my grandfather, who, like a good grandfather, lives in Boca Raton. And, you know, my, my grandfather is a, law. yeah, exactly. Uh, my, my, my grandfather is a very, very, very erudite, bright, well, well-read man, but he is a man of the left, and we do not agree on everything. But I have to say, on this issue, we were in absolute lockstep agreement when it came to Ukraine, when it came to Zelensky's flaws. And it was really interesting to see. And, you know, we talked about this for like a half hour and I kind of left that conversation with my grandfather and was like, wow, like if you and I like are this passionate and we are this much in lockstep, we're probably right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, and, it's, and what was and what was your consensus? Oh, sorry for not clarifying. Yeah, the consensus. I, I've, I've been kind of skeptical of prolonged involvement in this theater basically since the get go. And that's not to say that Vladimir Putin is is anything other than a thug. He obviously is a thug there. But uh, it's simply the, it, it is very simply the, the point that the United States national interest in this conflict, especially in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass and the Crimea, where you have these towns that are 50-50 ethnic Ukrainian, ethnic, the U.S. interest is simply not synonymous with the Ukrainian national interest. If I were a Ukrainian nationalist, I would love Vladimir Zelensky, but I'm an, Ameri- I'm, I'm an American nationalist and an American conservative, so it's just a very, very straightforward um, thing. Does granddad, as a f- admitted figure of the left, who is suspicious and skeptical and uh, in opposition to eternal uh, American involvement in Ukraine, does he find himself in the minority? Because most of the liberals that I talk to on the show or that I see in the uh, social media sphere are all in for Ukraine. And I know why. It's because they desperately need a foreign policy success in the Biden years. So I think that's part of it. I, I think what you just said is absolutely part of it. My other possible hypothesis for why the left and the Democratic Party have just gone all in for this conflict. I think we're seeing the lingering effects of Russiagate and the Russia collusion delusion. I think Russiagate really just kind of brought back and instilled in the modern American left this idea of Russia as this Soviet era kind of end all be all menace, which is deeply ironic, by the way, because during the Cold War, when the Soviet Union was actually an all out totalitarian existential threat, you had leading figures on the left like Bernie Sanders, Ted Kennedy, to a lesser extent, express sympathy 
with the Soviet Union. So it's actually just profoundly and bitterly ironic. But uh, when, it, when it comes to my grandfather, he's just more of kind of a traditional kind of war skeptical liberal. So, you know, it's been interesting for him to kind of, I think, see where his party has gone and, and try to just be a little skeptical of those trends. Um, but, Mark, let's take it to a quick commercial break here. So we're here with Mark Davis, syndicated radio host. Stay with us. We will be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So speaking of things that Joe Biden could use a distraction from, um, he certainly could use a distraction from what is happening in the Chinese Communist Party funded Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, if, if I have the uh, very complex name of, of that quote unquote think tank correctly, as well as, of course, his uh, his Corvette garage in Wilmington, Delaware. And I speak, of course, of this ongoing royal and classified document scandal. And I do use deliberately the word scandal. Um, so, Mark, what are your thoughts as we just continue, it seems like, every day to see more in the way of documents retained by President Biden that should not have been there, including apparently as far back as his time as a United States senator from Delaware? So what do you what do you make of just the uh, specifically if I, I'd be kind of curious your thoughts on, on the slow, methodical drip drip nature of these document revelations? Do you make anything of that? And then also, what effect do you think that has on the likelihood that former President Trump himself is indicted? It has taken on the air of the, uh, the, the, the death of a thousand cuts, hasn't it? And I think everybody before weighing in should deliver a very brief treatise on how much they care about former presidents and vice presidents having some classified stuff on them after they leave office. What is your level of caring about that? Mine is consistently and universally low. Mar-a-Lago didn't keep me awake at night. Biden having some stuff doesn't keep me awake at night or bother me in a vacuum. Oh, but this is no longer a vacuum. Into that vacuum has rushed all kinds of subterfuge, all kinds of dishonesty. What's the old saying? The cover-up is worse than the crime. I don't think many Americans care at all if high elected officials go, whoops, there's stuff I had. I shouldn't have had it here. Let me give it back. And we're done. We get on with our lives. But but when questions arise as to what exactly did you have and why, who had access to it, how sloppily was it stored, and, uh, and are you being continually, additionally, profoundly dishonest with us about it? And if so, what does that mean you are hiding? And then you throw out the wildly overmatched Karine Jean-Pierre. I didn't think it was possible for me to feel sorry for her, <laughs> but I do. The greatest press secretary in history could not navigate this with any greater skill because she has been given precisely nothing to work with. So what we have here is an ever worsening Biden situation, which, as you skillfully juxtapose, absolutely guarantees that Trump uh, endures no prosecution, no persecution on his document scandal, because that would be a double standard that even the media could not ignore. Yeah, it seems to me that that is the obvious conclusion when it comes to President Trump's own document woes vis-a-vis Mar-a-Lago. I personally do predict he probably will still get indicted on January 6th committee grounds. That indictment would be legally erroneous and, and frivolous, to be clear, but I probably predict that that is coming. So, well, do you agree with that? I mean, do you think that it's, that it, that he'll probably get indicted on January 6th grounds? You know, I, it's probably so because there is no depth to the treachery of this January 6th cult, uh, which means I should probably give everybody 30 seconds on that if they're hearing me for the first time. January 6th was terrible. Uh, so is the 2020 election result in terms of how tainted and flawed and unreliable it was. Do I know that Trump absolutely won by X amount of votes in Michigan and Pennsylvania? I do not. Do I know that rules were flouted in COVID panic? Yes, I do. That's unacceptable. January 6th was to have been 
a gathering of people expressing their disfavor, their frustration. And Mike Pence himself, the much maligned Mike Pence, was on my show a couple of weeks ago. And I asked him, even though all everybody wants to know from Pence is how did it feel to have Trump calling for your head and 800 people in the building who wanted to hang you from the rafters of the Capitol Rotunda. But he said that that his wish would have been uh, to have a thoughtful, uh, to have, a, have history record that there were large numbers of Americans who were not okay with the way 2020 went and to galvanize ourselves to do better in the future. The rioters made that quite impossible. Thanks a lot, guys. Big help from you that day. So it was terrible. The wheels of justice should turn for the rioters. The committee's dog and pony show political vendetta, which was, had, which was single-mindedly all about destroying the Trump brand, which they may have at least partially succeeded in doing, was one of the most shameful exercises in American political history. So yes, when you say you think an, uh, some type of indictment is coming from that, uh, that cauldron of malice, sure, why not? Cauldron of Malice, Dog and Pony Show. Uh, you are one with words. <laughs> you know, this is, as, as a writer myself, I certainly, I certainly appreciate it. So speaking of that indictment then, so if that does happen, does that impact Trump's 2024 chances? Uh, put another way, I, I, you know, I, speaking to my grandfather, he asked me this question. He said, Josh, you know, if President Trump is indicted, does he drop out of the running? I said probably not. I'm curious oh, no. if you agree with that. He'll fundraise off of it <laughs> he, he will, he, and, and successfully. Uh, but, but I think the question you ask is, what does that objectively do to the field. his uh, appeal? Uh, it, it, and you're, you're, it's a question with like a multi-layered answer to the Trump base. We, we've, we've spoken for years about never Trump. I'm pretty interested with the community that I call only Trump. And that is folks who think that the DeSantis kid's a nice young man, but no, they will not be satisfied until Trump himself has his hand on the Bible January 20th, 2025, so we can finally own the libs. I, I confess to a certain appeal uh, for that scenario as well, but I just don't know if I have the confidence that it will happen, which is what leads to my great curiosity and growing affinity for DeSantis. So within that base of only Trump, they, they will they, they will actually, it'll galvanize them. It'll be proof that the, the swamp is after him, that the snakes are, you know, are out there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the Trump haters won't hate him anymore. I mean, that, that they've that's baked in. They've maxed that out. So in the middle, the, the sort of mushy middle that went sufficiently for Trump in 2016 that he won and sufficiently away from him in 2020 that he, I guess, lost, uh, you got to ask what an indictment does to them. It's probably off-putting because most people who are not as ideologically wired as you and I might be or the hard left might be, all other things being equal, they don't like indictments. I guess rank is kind of overstating it, but like, I, I guess let's use that word. I mean, like, how do you rank the 2024 field at this point? You mentioned Ron DeSantis, who obviously hasn't announced his presidential candidacy yet, but, you know, many expect that he will do so probably after the Florida legislative session ends around this May or so. So, you know, according to every poll that we see that, you know, he and Trump are in a league of their own as far as kind of a prospective 2024 presidential field. So first of all, how do you rank those two, not in terms of your personal kind of preference, but do you think one has an edge, assuming as many expect DeSantis does announce? And then the second question would be, are there any other non-Trump, non-DeSantis candidates that people like you and me who are kind of you know closely follow these things that we should really be keeping an eye on because that person, he or she, could potentially surge later this year? After 2016, where we had the spectacle of 16 people on stage, which was enormously entertaining, uh, I don't think that happens this time. In fact, it may be fewer than half if DeSantis runs, because honestly, and I know this is January of 2023, and we should always put an asterisk in that, uh, if Trump and DeSantis are both running, it is hard to imagine why anybody else does. And I know that's a sledgehammer to come in with, but I, I even said this to Vice President Pence. I said, wow, no kidding. it possible wow. that, Trump, that Trump, Trump is not your worst enemy, that, that, not enemy, but your worst obstacle, that DeSantis is, that everybody that liked the Trump-Pence agenda, which Pence is still fond of calling it, that if they liked it but don't know anymore what they think about him, DeSantis is there, so there's the instant go-to. And that Pence was a loyal vice president, is a wonderful man, a great Christian, a, a good, good, good conservative. Uh, but I just I see absolutely no groundswell of support for his presidential run. I am going to be speaking in a couple of uh, days 
with Mike Pompeo, who intrigues me in the following way. I think he is sufficiently acceptable to Trump loyalists. But if somebody thinks that the Trump page has turned, but they feel the world is dangerous and they need somebody with some foreign policy trumps, uh, uh, chops, excuse me, of which DeSantis has none, there's Pompeo. Then you get into the whole Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, South Carolina contingent of admirable people who I just don't think have the fighting DNA. A lot of other folks. uh, I kind of wish Tom Cotton had not waved this off, quite frankly. But that's really about, I I mean, very seriously, I'll return to my original question. With both Trump and DeSantis in the field, chance of anybody else becomes close to zero. Mike Pompeo has a lot going for him. He's obviously a very smart guy, West Point, Harvard Law, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I I view his foreign policy experience, I guess, a charitable way of putting it as both a blessing and a curse, Um, because he very much is a part of kind of the foreign policy, national security, bipartisan consensus. And, you know, when I see Mike Pompeo, whether it's on Fox News or, you know, his, his Twitter account or kind of, I guess, my main kind of sources into, into Mike Pompeo, uh, you know, his stance on Ukraine, I guess, a, a polite way of saying it would not be my stance. Um, but, um, you know, look, he's obviously a very bright guy. And, you know, and he, he seems to have every, every indication of running. But, you know, you, you mentioned that when you had Mike Pence on your program, you, you know, you basically said, you know, does Ron DeSantis just, just, cl- just cloud you out? How did he respond to that? graciously and skillfully, because it's Mike Pence. Uh, He essentially said, Mark, it's early. Uh, If I run, it will be because I feel called to do so. And at that time, I will make my case before the American people and prayerfully hope that they will take my experience and my agenda and my dreams and aspirations for this country and find them superior superior to anybody else that's running. It was a very boilerplate, but also a very proper answer. He's not going to say, yeah, no, of, of, of course not. Chops, uh, you know, in, in January of 2023. But the, speaking of chop busting, uh, the, the famous quote, the one I can't get out of my head is somebody asked Trump on, on a podcast a few days ago. So this DeSantis guy, he's running against you. And Trump essentially said, I made him all he is. If he's running against me, I'll handle that the way I handle things. Good Lord, what did he mean by that? And obviously it has the, the imagery of a mafia. Exactly. Head, but I think I, I think I know what he meant by that. Uh, with a bull in a china shop, sharp elbows, you know, rat tat tat in all directions. And I don't think that's going to go well. I, I, I don't. Most of the DeSantis base thoroughly loved the Trump years and, and I saw like a Roger Stone fundraiser the other day saying, oh, the DeSantis effort is filled with anti-Trump donors. The DeSantis advocacy is not an anti-Trump stance. Thank God for you, sir. You, you changed the country and we will be forever grateful. But we think it's time to turn the page toward this guy. So if Trump comes out and tries to just bludgeon DeSantis the way he did the entire field in 2016, I think that backfires. You know, and you're starting to see some tea leaves of this, right? So no less a one-time Trump absolutist than Bill Mitchell himself has has come back on Twitter recently. I don't know if you remember Bill Mitchell's Twitter account from 2016, but there was there was literally no one on all of Twitter.com who was more hardcore MAGA. Literally nothing that Trump does is anything other than, you know, as, as pristine and blessed as, as the pure Arctic snow. So and Bill Mitchell... Uh, one of his first tweets back the other, when he got back on Twitter the other day, if I'm not mistaken, was effectively endorsing Ron DeSantis's hypothetical 2024 presidential campaign. Um, and there's any, there's any number of other data points are, uh, that, that are very similar to that. I've seen a lot of kind of people who are one time like absolutist MAGA who are now saying, ah, you know, maybe it's time to turn the page. You know what that proves? And I'm glad to see this proven that it was never about him as a cult of personality. It was never about him with some Pied Piper ability to charm and sing a siren song that would lure the brainless masses into MAGA rallies. It was about results. It was about winning. It was about conservatism. And we are in constant search for who can most effectively bring that. In 2016, it was Trump. In 2024, it may not be. And that's what is guiding the curiosity. So it's so much is, or at least was, about winning. I'm glad you said that. And in in my mind, that is part of the reason that Trump can't let 2020 go. And I I agree with everything you said about the manifold flaws and everything that went wrong in that election. I've written and spoken about this in various ways at great length. But he just can't let it go. And And I think part of the reason that he can't let it go is because he can't 
portray himself as someone who lost because his appeal is so predicated upon winning. I mean, we all remember his line from the 2016 presidential campaign, we're going to have so much winning, you're going to get tired of winning. So, you know, if he if he concedes the fact that, no, he did lose the election, no matter how t- tainted it was with all of this garbage mail-in voting and the illegitimate changes to election law that were not done by a state legislature, whatever. Whole, he, he just can't get over that. He can't concede that point because I think it partially ruins his whole brand. And, you know, look, this is going to be fun slash ugly stuff when it, if slash when it gets going. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I look forward to being along for the ride with you. Uh, Mark, we're, we're running a little short on time here. So I guess let's get, let's get you out of here with this question. You know, one kind of substantive topic that you've been particularly passionate about is kind of the threat of gender ideology um, and kind of the excesses of uh, LGBTQ, whatever other letters we now affix to that particular acronym and so, and so forth there, whether it's in, in terms of kind of the transgender athletics or drag queen story hours. So what kind of specific policies should the Republican House and Republican state legislatures, governors, be passing to push back against the excesses of gender ideology? I want everybody to think about all the issues that you and I have talked about for this past half hour or so, and they're all so incredibly vital. And I'm not the kind of person who tends to say this is more important than that, that the economy is more important than borders, or you know, the, the debt ceiling is more important than abortion. I mean, everybody has the way they slice the pie. But it has been tempting on the part of the public and on the part of elected officials to underplay the earth-shattering danger of radical gender theory. We have people, we have doctors, we have parents who today in 2023 see an effeminate 10 year old and the boy and think, well, he simply must be a girl. Or they see their tomboy fourth grade daughter and they think, well, uh, clearly uh, Jenny wants to be a boy. And they are mutilated and injected with things and we have hospitals and doctors and parents and editorial pages who think this is great. God himself shakes a finger at us in, at us in this regard. You don't have to be a person of faith. These are the, the, the definitions of male and female are defined, are, are, are invented by God, but defined by science. Where are the people who lecture us about science when it comes to how many genders there are? What adults do, I'm a live and let live conservative. If a 35-year-old man thinks he's a woman, knock yourself out, sir. I, I'm not going to do the pronouns thing, but I'm not going to dog you or torment you. It is your life and it's none of my business. Kids are everybody's business. And so to answer your question compactly, The only question to me is, should it be congressional or should it be state by state? I'm a big federalist from abortion to gay marriage. I believe every state ought to make its own rules. But something like this might be universal enough that it's time for Congress to act. And I don't know if it will the way Congress is striped right now. But very simply, it is this. Every single procedure of this type must be outlawed for minors. Under no circumstances should it be legal in the United States of America to tear the breasts off a teenage girl, to chemically castrate an adolescent boy because uh, Jimmy thinks he's a girl. Some of these kids want to grow up to be a fire truck. These kids can't figure out. uh, A lot of adults are scramble-brained about a lot of things. When you're nine, what in the world do you know? Affording Uh, a pre-adolescent, this kind of decision-making power and the ability to potentially ruin their lives forever is an outrage that may outstrip almost anything else that we've talked about. And if we don't get a handle on that, a lot of people will say, yeah, but the percentage of transgender people, transgender kids, there is no such thing as a transgender kid. They're confused kids. But the percentage of actual people is small. Yeah, it is now. It is now. But you just wait if we don't get a handle on this, which we must. Very well said. I mean, it's a human rights atrocity, frankly, is what it is. I mean, the fact that this is happening all across the country for everyone, but certainly for children, children more than anyone else. I personally think it's an atrocity when we kind of permit even adults to do this, but it's a double atrocity when children, who's obviously by definition of being children, simply do not know any better, are permitted by quote-unquote doctors who take that Hippocratic oath to do this really, really really awful stuff. And, you know, we're certainly glad that you're pushing back against this as hard as you are, because we really do need all hands on deck for this particular issue. And and the sad thing is, here I am in Texas, where I'm very, very pleased that Governor Abbott won, but I've dragged him kicking and screaming into this on the show, and he still doesn't get it. 
Uh, the Speaker of the Texas House doesn't get it. They are insufficient warriors. Our Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is on board. Yeah. A handful of Republicans I can mention in Austin are, not to just talk about my state, but DeSantis' Florida seems to have uh, its act together. Oklahoma, Tennessee, some other states seem to be moving. People are scared to death to take on the trans cult. And we better get over that in a hurry. We really do. And there was actually a very eye-opening recent piece in National Review from my friend Nate Hockman just talking about the depths to which transgender activists and lobbyists have attained foothold in no less red and no less rural a state than South Dakota, actually. It was a really eye-opening piece. I would encourage the listeners of this program to go ahead and check it out. Um, Mark, we're unfortunately out of time right now, though, but you know, this has been long overdue. You're a, you're, you're a brilliant radio host, and we love your Newsweek columns as well. So thank you so much for joining us this week. It was a real treat. It's a pleasure, pleasure to work with you in a variety of platforms, Josh. Thanks so much. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So Mark Davis, ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest gentlemen that I have come across in the talk radio and kind of conservative media space more generally really great to have mark on the program uh, you know again you can check out mark's columns at newsweek opinion we publish mark typically twice a month he is one of our regulars one of the things that we talked about there there's two things that i kind of want to touch on here in our in our closing thoughts we talked a little bit about biden 2024 the documents all of that i, I mentioned my grandfather numerous times already but i'll come back to that one more time i mean you know my grandfather is a man of the left And he really thinks this Biden classified document retention scandal is very, very bad. And he already had, my grandfather, a very poor opinion of Joe Biden. He thought that the Afghanistan withdrawal was absolutely atrocious, which it was. He has thought that his inadequate handling of inflation when it reached eight and a half, nine percent, the highest in 40 years last summer, he was very critical of his inability to quell those decades long high inflation numbers and so forth there. But he thinks that the classified document retention scandal is a really, really big deal. And you're starting to see some intellectually honest liberals concede that from an elected official perspective as well. So Senator Joe Manchin, who is, of course, moderate. He's maybe the only genuinely moderate Democrat in the, in the Senate Democratic Caucus, the Democrat from West Virginia, of course, but he nonetheless has been very critical. He has said that this is a very big deal. He is fully supportive of Merrick Garland's appointment of a special counsel to investigate Joe Biden's own classified document retention scandal. Even Tim Kaine, Tim Kaine, actually, the former, at this point, kind of almost under the radar, the former vice presidential running mate for Hillary Clinton in 2016, Tim Kaine was actually very critical, very critical of Joe Biden's mishandling of classified documents. He has now formally gone on record as supporting Merrick Garland's assignment of a special counsel to try to get to the bottom of what exactly happened here. And the big question, of course, is 2024. Well, Joe Biden's going to have to make a decision here in the next two or three months at the most. I would say three to four months at the absolute most, really two to three months. Uh, He's going to have to decide what he wants to do when it comes to 2024. And the reason for that is simple. The reason for that is that whether it's Iowa or South Carolina, as the Democrats seem to be headed, the first in the nation primaries or caucuses are coming up now in in roughly a year. And it takes a lot of time to build out national level presidential campaigns when it comes to fundraising, donors, all the consultants and just various kind of campaign operations and staffers and all that. So those folks need time is, is the point I'm trying to make here if Joe Biden is actually not going to run. And uh, honestly, I think it's a jump ball. I I really think at this point, it's pretty close to a 50-50 jump ball as to whether after this classified document scandal, Joe Biden actually does run in 2024. After those midterm elections where the red wave did not happen, I thought that he was going to run for sure, for sure. And then this this document scandal hits, and man, I really just threw everything up in the air. So I don't know. I, I, I will just be honest with you guys. I, I obviously do not know what's going to happen on that particular side of the aisle when it comes to 2024. But I know that there are a lot of folks out there, whether it's Gavin Newsom, Jared Powell's in Colorado, 
quite possibly even Kamala herself or Pete Buttigieg, as wildly unpopular as they both are, who are looking very carefully at the commander-in-chief to see whether he is going to run for re-election at this particular point. The only other thing that I wanted to touch on here in closing in our closing thoughts was kind of continuing that gender ideology discussion there. And I want to take what I said just one step further. The reason that I always make a point of saying that these gender mutilation procedures are wrong, period, full stop, end of story, not merely for children where they are horrific, egregious, really just amounting to a human rights atrocity. That There's simply no other way to describe medical quote-unquote professionals who are cutting off penises and breasts of healthy young children. There is no other way to describe that as a human rights atrocity. But the reason that I make such a deliberate point of extending that not merely from children to adults is for the following reason. And I think this kind of cuts to the core, actually, of kind of a more muscular conservatism, new right style of kind of policy versus a kind of more classical liberal or libertarian inclined approach. So from kind of a classical liberal or libertarian perspective, think about in terms of John Stuart Mill's famous harm principle, right? You can basically get all of your policy conclusions from that perspective when it comes to the harm principle and the issue of consent. So here, consent basically does all the work. And the, the implicit distinction between children and adults when it comes to a transgender quote-unquote surgery, a.k.a. gender mutilation procedure, the purported distinction between children and adults is the issue of consent. The child, uh, going back to English common law and the law of contracts and all of that, is incapable of consenting unless you reach the age of maturity, however that age is defined. An adult can consent. The point that I make in extending it to adults, is to criticize the paradigm of consent itself as being a sufficient means to validate gender mutilation procedures. Put more simply, and put in more very straightforward terms here, gender mutilation procedures are here, there, and everywhere wrong, period, full stop, end of story. You do not have a right to commit a wrong of this nature. You do not have a right to do something that is, I would argue, objectively terrible, even if the victim, or at least the most direct victim, is yourself. So I'm criticizing there the idea of consent as kind of the end-all, be-all of our politics. And anyone who objects to full-on drug legalization would have to agree with that. Because if you, if you think that consent is all that matters, then you should support the legalization of heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, which is, oh my God, I mean, the fentanyl crisis obviously is making hundreds of people drop dead a day. But if consent is all that matters, then you have to support the legalization of all of that. Because as long as an adult consents to what he or she is putting in her body and so forth there. So you see the various ways in which kind of this consent notion can kind of break down as defining our politics. So I wanted to kind of just draw out that that little distinction there between kind of a more kind of muscular new right style of conservatism versus perhaps a slightly more kind of classical liberal or libertarian inclined approach. But, you know, until next week, guys, uh, thanks as always for tuning in. You can go ahead to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Please go ahead and leave us that five-star review. Drop in your comments. We do go ahead and read them on a reliable basis. And hope you enjoy this episode. We will see you next week. 